Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke chapter 2. It's kind of hard still to believe it's Christmas, isn't it? I'm not quite there yet. But I know everybody's moving quite forward, and we're about three weeks from today until Christmas Day comes. But we're just going to focus throughout the Christmas season in our studies on one short section uh, of text in Luke chapter 2. And it's really important as we study at Christmas uh, because the text is so absolutely familiar to us that we don't become emotionally detached or or assume kind of that we've heard it all. It's, it's hard sometimes as a pastor when you've been doing it uh, now a quarter century, I have uh, when you come to the Christmas season to think, well, how do I, how do I make this fresh? How do I find something that, that's different? And um, one thing we know about Scripture, because we can study other passages hundreds of times, is that you always get a fresh insight from the Scripture when you study it with the mindset of listening to the Holy Spirit. And when you are ready, and I am ready, to be changed by what the text says and what the Spirit teaches us, any time that we come to the text and, and we're, we're open and we're ready and we're going to listen and follow what the Holy Spirit says, uh, the, the, the text will be fresh. Now, a lot of times, the reason we don't get something more out of the text is we kind of go, oh, Philippians 2, I've read this like a hundred times, I know what it says, I memorized part of it, and... Yeah, okay, I'll read it because it's my obligation. I never approach Scripture like that. Always approach Scripture with an air of expectation because even after years and years and years of knowing the Lord, even after years and years and years of studying the Bible, you will always find something that is a new insight. So that's what we need to do. And as, we've, as I've been studying and kind of discerning from the Lord what He wants us to study here over the Christmas season, uh, I, I just pray that we'll see Luke 2 in a new light. And I've been impressed in my own heart uh, that we will use some of the lyrics of some of the Christmas carols that we're going to sing um, to show how they enhance our understanding of the passage. Now, we may have the same approach to Christmas carols that we have to Scripture that's familiar. We, we sing them and we don't really think about exactly what we're saying, but there's some really strong theology in some of these songs. And I'd like to just highlight each week one line out of a Christmas carol, and we'll try to sing the Christmas carol that day too, um, and apply it to this text in Luke chapter 2. So let's start reading, and, and just so we can start the season right, we're going to read uh, the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. We won't do that each week, but just important uh, for us to get all the background, and some of you have memorized this text. I know I memorized this in the King James when I was a kid, so when I read another translation, I'm always kind of like, that's not what I remember, but... Um, follow along whatever Bible you have. I'm going to read from the New American Standard, and let's read uh, verses 1 to 20. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his own way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David. That's a key, significant, prophetic point. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, 
there were some shepherds standing out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. The angels had gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. Now, there is no historical account that has ever been written with all the history books, encyclopedias, uh, online resources, uh, and, and it is a vast wealth of information. There is no historical account in all of mankind's history that is more amazing than this. That God would enter into the realm of his creation, not as an awesome, sovereign, divine being, which he is, not as the righteous judge, which he's allowed to be, not as the Lord and creator, but in the form of a human baby. A baby that's untainted by man's sin and yet experiences every single thing that mankind can experience for the purpose of taking all of mankind's sin on himself and putting it to death so man has the opportunity to live eternally. This is astounding and it's humbling and it's profound and it's wonderful, and it's overwhelming all at once. And I want you, this season, even if you've been saved a long time, I want you to to be struck by the wonder of what we're talking about. Because we know Christmas, and we've done Christmas services, and we've studied the text, and we've memorized the text, and, and I really believe it is possible, even as believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ, to get a little bit jaded about the whole thing. And we need to be overwhelmed by the fact of what is going on here, that that Jesus has done this, that he has entered into creation. And from the moment he is born, the reason for that coming is laid out. We see it here in verse 11. It says, he will be the Savior. Now that was shown all throughout the Old Testament as necessary by the failure of Israel to follow after God and to be righteous in themselves, even though God gave them a very specific law and said, you need to do this, and here's my expectation, Israel failed miserably as the world around them was drastically carnal. So Israel proved that this was necessary throughout the Old Testament. And then it was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament with the people who were types of Christ, like Abraham and Isaac, and he was supposed to offer his son. That was a, a picture, it's called, excuse type uh, of what is going to happen next. So we see pictures all throughout the Old Testament of the coming of Christ. 
And then the prophets predicted it. They, they foresaw it. They said, this is going to happen. And Isaiah said, a child is going to be born, and he's going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. This baby's coming. This Messiah's coming. He will be the Savior of all mankind. So everything in the Old Testament led up to this. And now God has come to redeem mankind. And the angel says in the text, look at it, this is good news of great joy, and it's for all people. Anyone can have it. Anyone can believe in it. Anyone can receive it. Now, with news that historically and eternally and spiritually significant, we would have every expectation that it would be announced with great fanfare and that the most important and influential people would be there to report on it so they could take it back and tell everybody else so everybody would have an understanding of what's going on right away. I tried to imagine this week what it would be like if this event was covered by the 24-7 news cycle that we have now. Can you imagine the, the over-reporting of this event? We, we get excited about little things like Michael Jackson's doctor got convicted of manslaughter, and that's front-page news, and it's uh, whole shows dedicated to it, and, and CNN will run with it, and, and Nancy Grace will go over I, I can't even believe I mentioned her name. You know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody weighs in with an opinion. Special report, special graphic, breaking news. You know what it's like. Every angle covered. Opinions running the gamut. People dissecting the details and the implications until we just can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore with the news. 24-7, all the time. I can't take it anymore. It's too much information. I don't care that much. But that's not what happened here. The scene is so completely contrary to that. And everything about this text, considering how so significant, I mean, it's, it's not even possible to say how significant this is. Everything about this text is unusual and surprising. It takes place in Bethlehem, a little disrespected, overlooked town about seven miles from Jerusalem. Probably no more than a couple hundred people living there. I mean, this, this is not Racine. This is not Milwaukee. This is a tiny, tiny, tiny little village. And yet here, the Savior of mankind is born. Two spiritually mature teenagers are responsible for this baby. They're married, but they've remained pure. They have not consummated the marriage. They're away from home. They belong in Nazareth, way to the north. They're here. There's no family. There's no home. There's nothing to settle into. They don't have a nice room at the Hampton Inn. There's nothing for them, and they're just kids. Nowhere to stay, no one to deliver the baby when it comes, no resources to prepare for the birth, so they have to find a stable and deliver the baby, not knowing what they're doing, and wrap him in strips of cloth and lay him in a feeding trough for animals. The baby's first seen by shepherds whose names are never given, and they get the message from an angel who initially terrifies them with his appearance in the middle of the night. And that's it. There's nothing else. There's no one else that comes along that night. And the shepherds go out and tell other people, and they're amazed by it, and they wonder what's going on, and there's some stirring, 
but, but the news is apparently not big enough that it ever reaches the ears of the king because the king finally hears about it sometime later. We don't know when the wise men got there, but they weren't at the nativity scene. The wise men come later, and they go to Herod, and they say, a king's been born. We want to worship him. Where is he? And that's the first time Herod hears about it, and he immediately panics and says, kill all male children under two. Everything about this, I'm struck again this year, everything about this doesn't play out like we would expect it to play out. And for us to really infuse ourselves into the text, let's try to get a clear sense of what it really must have been like for, for Joseph and Mary as they arrive in Bethlehem. Because we know what the Christmas cards look like, right? Mary's looking about mm, five, six months pregnant. She's not really very big. They're kind of riding through the night in silhouette on a camel. She's on the camel, kind of perched sideways. Joseph walking very calmly alongside. The stars are out. You hear the choir singing. It's very beautiful. And, and Merry Christmas. Or now we've gone to Happy Holidays, which I despise. It's Merry Christmas. And we have this, this Christmas card picture. There's rarely a graphic of them being turned away at the end. There's never a Christmas card that shows the intensity of actual childbirth. Who would buy that, right, at Walgreens? You're not going to send that to your friends. Hey, look, Mary's having the baby. But that's real, isn't it? This was not all soft and Christmas card, and Mary wasn't holding the baby with a halo around her head, looking like she had experienced no trauma, and everything's just wonderful. That we have to understand the real visceral sense of what this was like. Because this was reality. This was not pretty Christmas cards. This is a real birth in a real stable as they've been turned away from a real inn. These are teenagers who are struggling without anybody around them to deliver the Son of God. The first thing we need to understand from this text is that they were turned away from the inn. There was no room at the inn. Now with the census drawing everybody to their hometowns, that they wouldn't have necessarily been surprised by that, but it definitely had to be disheartening, right? And I think there's a sense where it may have even been unexpected in light of the fact that this baby was coming. This was not just any baby. They had been told by the angel that this was a gift from the Lord, and that this child was going to have an unbelievably unique role in human history as God in flesh, the Savior of mankind. So I wonder this week, wouldn't they have had some thought that God would make it easier for them because of what he had asked them to do? Couldn't they move forward with some degree of expectation that while Bethlehem was overcrowded, certainly the Lord who had asked them to deal with this situation would have the place and resources needed for them to, to deliver this baby. Now that's a legitimate question, and, and it comes from a perception that we often have about how God should work in our thinking. Usually when we know that we're doing the Lord's will, listen carefully now, we have the expectation that things will go somewhat effortlessly for us as we carry it out. 
We know in trial that there's crisis, and we know when we're just walking every day that there's different variations to how our circumstances go. But there are times when we know, God, you've called me to something. I I know it's going to be a challenge. I know it's going to stretch my faith, whether it's a trial or a new adventure from the Lord. I I know that's going to... So, Lord, I, 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 I expect... We don't say this out loud, but it's in our minds. I expect... That, that you will make this a little bit easier for me because you've asked a lot. We have that belief in our minds. But as we saw last week, the Lord sometimes changes the situation and our expectations, not only to te- teach us to trust, but also to reveal a deeper spiritual meaning. Think about it. How much attention would we pay to the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ if it had been normal? If they had gotten to town and they had a midwife who was skilled, ready and willing to go and they were staying with some family in a nice house in Bethlehem and the circumstances were right and Joseph was able to walk outside the room pacing like fathers do except now they make us be in there for the birth of the baby so we have to pace in a little tiny space like this. And all Joseph's friends and relatives, Joseph, it's going to be great. Congratulations. This is wonderful. Still a little... Uh, still a little question about the circumstances behind this whole thing, but congratulations, Joseph. This is great. And Mary's in there with her mom and her sister and, and, and the midwife, and everything's clean and sanitized and wonderful. That you would, you would have some expectation that it would be like that, and if it was, would we even talk about it? It would still be miraculous, but it wouldn't seem quite as significant, would it? See, as believers walking by faith, we should want to experience what is spiritually significant. We should want to experience what is powerful and has meaning and impact, even if it means that our expectations get twisted a little bit. And I don't know about you, I've been saved a long time. My expectations have been twisted a lot. My thoughts of what's going to happen have been changed. And the situation of being turned away at the end is just the start of that, and it has so many different layers to it. Joseph and Mary have to trust in God's provision like they've never trusted before, and their homelessness reminds us of the helplessness of of the spiritual condition of the world, and the plainness and humility of the place where they give birth in the stall reminds us of the humility of Christ that Philippians 2 talks about, and their significance here in verse 12, as they wrap them in cloths, and there's an advance foreshadowing. There's an there's a advanced picture of what's going to happen one day in Jerusalem when he's going to be wrapped, and his body's going to be wrapped in strips, and he's going to be laid in the tomb. The fact that he's put in a manger, we don't know whether the manger was wood or whether it was stone. Either one would have significance because if he's laid in a manger of wood, it pictures the cross. If he's laid in a manger of stone, it pictures Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, which was dug out extra because Joseph was apparently shorter than Jesus and they had to dig out the stone and Jesus was laid in stone. So take your pick. Whether he's on wood or on stone, it pictures the cross and the resurrection. Everything about this shows something forward. It all mattered. And it wouldn't have happened, listen now, unless they had been turned away at the end. 
And that has its own spiritual implication because the fact that they're rejected is a, is a metaphor spiritually for how the world, by and large, is going to respond to Jesus Christ. Even now, continued, continued, continued de-emphasis on Christ. Now it's Xmas and Happy Holidays and Happy Hanukkah and Happy uh, whatever. I don't even know all of them anymore. It is Christmas. It is Christ coming to earth. It is Jesus Christ being born. That's the only reason we're celebrating. Not that Walmart's running a special on toys. It is about Jesus Christ. And the fact that they come up to the inn and the innkeeper says, I'm sorry. Can't do it. There's nothing here. Have you seen the town? There's a census going on. Everybody's here. Why didn't you guys get here earlier? You're pregnant. I feel for you. I'm really sorry. I don't have anywhere. Find a place. You want to go to the barn? Take that. It's the best I can do. What a metaphor. What a picture of how the world's going to reject Christ. Even before his birth, when he's come to offer man forgiveness and redemption, Jesus is not welcome in lowly little Bethlehem, the city of David, that he will occupy the throne for forever. And yet, I want you to notice in the text, Mary and Joseph find a place, and people find him, and their lives are transformed by it, and they tell others, and the others hear the good news, and their hearts are drawn to Christ the Savior. Listen, even when the world rejects Jesus, people will still find him. The devil can work his hardest this morning to push people away from Christ but people are still going to find him because he's a seeking God. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Mary and Joseph had to understand the implication of that as they got turned away from the inn because they were spiritually mature and they made the best of it and they knew God's provision and then they started to understand what this was all about. Now it's easy to spiritualize that 2,000 years later, but don't you have to wonder how Mary really felt. And in my study this week, I got a new insight, I believe, new for me, into her personal perspective of what she really felt. I want you to really now, stop listening to me, and I really want you to think through, maybe you close your eyes, think through what this was actually like for Mary. What were those final hours like as she knew the baby was coming and she saw the opportunity for reasonable circumstances for delivery dwindling away. What did she feel in her heart when the innkeeper told them there was no room and another contraction hit and she looked over at Jacob at, at, jo, at Joseph as she's bent over in pain and the innkeeper standing there blocking the door and she looks at Joseph and Joseph has a look of concern and helplessness on his face. What was her level of anxiety and fear? Knowing that there was no one there to help and that she was going to deliver this baby right then. And she's not only nervous about the process of doing that, but she's feeling personally awkward and embarrassed that he's going to have to help her in such an intimate situation and they've never been intimate before. I mean, we really have to read this text 
thinking about this pure girl who's had an unbelievable situation handed to her, and now she has no help to carry through on God's plan. And think about what it was like in the hours after she delivered the baby. She's overwhelmed. You ladies have experienced that. Us men kind of get a little hint of it. But you ladies know what I'm talking about. That unbelievable flood of joy and contentment. And then mix that in with the comfort of God's provision and Joseph's care. And she can finally rest and relax after, after the incredible challenge and tension and, and, and all the rumors back in Nazareth and the long journey down to Bethlehem and the labor and the delivery and, and, and all of that. And, and now, oh, she can finally rest. And it's a stable, but this is her baby. And then all of a sudden, the quietness of that moment is interrupted by these loud, intrusive shepherds who come right into the stable, loudly praising God. Do you picture it? I want you to picture it. We don't know how long it took them to show up, but the shepherd's hills outside of Bethlehem, I've stood on them. They're, they're just a very short walk. And it had been a quiet night in a small village. It said they hurried to Bethlehem. So it couldn't have taken them long. I believe the moment the baby was born, the angels showed up. There's been a baby born. And they say, let's get there quick. So they race. So let's just imagine in our minds, as people have studied this text many times, that, that it was within the hour, maybe two at the most. I don't even think it took that long. You know, ladies, what it's like after birth. It's not just all happy and clean and you wrap the baby and you snuggle and you feel wonderful, right? I get a witness on that one? So there's still, there's still recovery going on, physically and emotionally, and she's going through the wealth of different emotions that have taken place since the birth of this baby, and she's just settling in and just holding that baby, and these come in, these guys come in, and they disturb their time alone, and their approach is unusual. They're full of anticipation. They're full of happiness about meeting Christ. They're so full of joy. And I tried this week, and I really want you to do this. Try to see this through Mary's eyes. Try to put yourself sitting there holding the baby and see this from her perspective. You're sitting in the manger. Joseph is there. He's trying to kind of clean up. And she hears voices. She doesn't know that these men have gotten a message from the angels out on the hills. She doesn't know what's going on. It could have been anything. And she may have looked at Joseph with concern, like, what is that? We're not very secure here. Who are these people? And maybe she clutched the baby a little tighter, unsure whether they had, they had good intentions or they were just drunks wandering through the crowded city. But see it through her eyes as they round the corner and their faces light up and their voices cry out, There he is! That's him. That's the baby. You picture it? And they're sitting going, what? And these total strangers suddenly come in and they're on their knees and they're rejoicing and they're praising God and they know who this baby is. There he is. That's the baby the angels told us about. 
Mary and Joseph look at each other because they had gotten a visit from angels. There he is. This is the one. This is this all glory to God of the highest. This is the answer. And slowly, the realization dawns on Joseph and Mary of what's going on. You know, there's a very important spiritual principle in that thought. Because just like our expectations being altered and our plans often get interrupted, when our expectations are altered and our plans are interrupted, we don't always experience what we thought we would. But we need to understand that God has a purpose in that. Faith requires being adaptable. I want you to hear that. If you get nothing else, I want you to hear that sentence. Faith requires being adaptable. It requires not being stuck in our ways and not being stuck in our plans because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God does not lay out our week before us like we have an agenda. If we look at our date book, I know exactly what I have scheduled this week. I know when I have to be where and with whom. God is not going to lay that out for you this week. He's not going to give you all this clear structure that has no flexibility to it so you know exactly what's going on. How many know that's true? Tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and God's going to have fresh mercy for you and you have no idea what he has planned. And if we're going to walk by faith, we have to be adaptable to what he's going to do. Now, Mary didn't get time to bond. Like she would expect she would get time to bond. Like she would hope after all of it was done, Joseph, I just want to sit here with Jesus. I just, just, just put your arm around me. I just want to sit here. This town is so busy. I just want to rest. And the voices get closer. And they look at each other. And the voices get closer. And all of a sudden, these strangers are standing there. But here's the benefit that Mary got out of that. She got an affirmation of the calling that God had given her. And she got a new understanding of the fact that this really was the Savior. And these people show up. And she gets an even greater understanding of what God's doing because these strange shepherds that she's never met and will never see again come in praising God and touching the child and just saying wonderful things to Mary and Joseph and talking about the angels and saying glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. And in that moment, she is affirmed and her faith is confirmed and the plan of God is understood. That's why when you look at verse 19, look at the text. It says, Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is the attitude of spiritual maturity. This is hard. What I'm about to say is hard. Rather than being annoyed that our plans are changed and that we're inconvenienced, and it's not like we thought it was going to be. 
we need to have the attitude of Mary who had the spiritual perception to know that this was of the Lord and that she was reminded of God's intricate plan to bring his son into the world to be our savior. So rather than resenting it, she valued it. That's James 1. Despise not the trial of your faith, but let it have its work so you will be perfect and patient and complete. When your faith is tested positively or negatively, value it rather than resenting it. When God alters the plan of your life this week and changes the schedule, so to speak, spiritually, don't sit there and go, come on, God, say, praise the Lord God has something else. It is all in our attitude because it's all in our faith. Listen, there may be something going on in your life this morning and in your walk that you need to apply that principle to because if we don't see with the perspective of spiritual maturity what's going to happen, it's going to create bitterness in our hearts and it's going to actually hinder us from loving God and trusting Him. Imagine the conversation that she and Joseph had with the shepherds and how much it confirmed confirmed their yielded reliance on God. I never, I, I can't tell you how many times I studied this passage. I had never thought about it till this week. Because we see the nativity scenes, right? Everybody knows what the nativity scene, the crush. Come on, you know that's true, right? And all the Christmas cards are two-dimensional and they're stop-action. Mary and Joseph walking, the shepherds rejoicing. Good luck finding a Christmas card after that, right? I'm going to get something with words. But for the first time in 47 years this year, I thought about the conversation. The shepherds were regular guys. And there had to be some talk between them and Joseph and Mary. And they told, because they knew Joseph and Mary were probably intimidated when they barged in. They said, oh, well, let's tell you how we got here. We were out in the fields watching our sheep, and, and an angel showed up. And, oh, man, initially we were so scared. We were just, we were terrified what in the world is this? And Mary and Joseph said, we, we were visited by an angel too. Wow, really? I, I'm, using, I'm using my own words here, but this is, this is what we get between the lines. Well, this angel told us that there's good news of great joy. And all the angels, all the hosts appeared. It was unbelievable. It was overwhelming. First we saw the one, and that terrified us. And then the whole sky was full of angels. And they all said, glory to God of the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill, amen. And we couldn't believe it. Now there was peace coming. And let us tell you what they told us. They said, don't fear, because God is intervening in human history. And there's a Savior for all people. How that had to warm Joseph and Mary's hearts. How that had to, to remind them of the precious child that they're holding, not an ordinary child, the Son of God. 
And I have to believe that phrase. Look at it. We're almost done. Look at the phrase in verse 10, that, or verse 11. That phrase, do not be afraid. Oh, that had to be the one that the shepherds emphasized. Not so much in terms of how frightened they were by the suddenness and the awe of the appearing of the angels. But I believe they heard the secondary meaning, which was really the primary meaning, where God said, don't be afraid, because the answer to man's problems is here. Maybe they ministered to Mary and Joseph. I don't know. But they said, listen, we know you guys got visited by an angel. We know you understand who that baby is. But let us just encourage you. The angel said, this is good news of great joy. And that not only relieved and alleviated our situational fear, but it alleviates our spiritual fear. Every single person that you will encounter this week, whether they will admit it or not, has some level of fear and apprehension about what will happen to their soul when they die. It is hard to find a single person who doesn't have at least some level of conviction about heaven and hell. And even if they choose to ignore it and live for themselves, I guarantee you with every single person you will meet, there is some nervousness in the back of their minds about what happens when we die and the consequences of how we live. And the more we see society spoiled, uh, spiral down morally, and the more the enemy wants to dull us to the fact of judgment, at some point it will be, I'm not making a political statement, I'm drawing an analogy, at some point it will be like the economy. At some point we will come to the realization that somebody's got to pay for all the borrowing and spending and printing money. And at some point, how I live, somebody's got to pay for. If I choose to live for myself, then I'm going to pay for it. If I choose to trust Jesus Christ, he's already paid it. But somebody has to pay. There is a price. It is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. But listen to the words of the angel. Good news of great joy for all This wasn't a declaration of God's judgment. The angel doesn't come after 400 years of silence and say, you guys have had it. You thought the flood was something. You have no idea. The angels come and they say, God, by his grace and mercy, is going to give you his undeserved love, his undeserved mercy, and his undeserved forgiveness for you. There is no terror in this. There's nothing to be apprehensive about. You don't need to be fearful. This is not negative and harsh. It is positive and life transforming. Think how much our world needs that this morning. With the global economic paralysis that's taking hold and the political instability and corruption and the unending threat of sudden terror and the spiritual confusion and social neediness of our culture. Part of the reason, not being political, let me say this, part of the reason the president won in 2008 is that he promised 
that he would create a climate that was positive and life-changing, but he failed because that was a disingenuous political statement rather than a call to spiritual focus centered on Jesus Christ. It will never work. No politician, Republican or Democrat, will ever solve it. Jesus is the only one who can bring a message of good news, of great joy for all people. That was significant in the first century because Israel was a mess and there had been the debacle for centuries of their disobedience to God and then there had been silence and the nations divided and scattered and they're physically and spiritually decimated and now God is bringing a message of spiritual revival to his people that they have ignored for years. It's also a message to the world that there is going to be spiritual hope. There are going to be times of refreshing. There's going to be a new awakening spiritually based on God's unmerited grace. Even if people are going to reject it, this is what God's going to do. So the shepherds heard the message, and Matthew 2.10 says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God puts three demonstratives in that little phrase. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Because the coming of Christ as Savior elicits joy. And that joy, let me say this and I will be done quickly, that joy has three components. Let me give them to you. Number one, it's not just marginal joy or okay joy or or we hope for the best joy or somewhat encouraging joy. The Greek word in that text is the word megas. It means abundant. It means mega. It means great joy. Joy is the emphasis of the season for the believer because we know the spiritual fulfillment of the truth that God came to give every sinner, every person, the opportunity for forgiveness and redemption and eternal life. Joy does not come from stress and busyness and the debt that we incur trying to find the right present, and it doesn't come from family or vacation time or more possessions. That is shallow and materialistic. It was summed up as an ad that I saw last night as I was going to bed where I saw all these happy people opening presents and stuffing a turkey and greeting family, and it was an ad for Time Warner. And it kept using the word joy, joy, joy. And I just finished. And I thought, hmm, that's a dichotomy. Joy from stuffing the bird. Really? I don't know about you. I don't get joy putting my hand in the cavity of a turkey. Let alone prepping the cavity of the turkey, right? That weird little package, I won't go there. I get joy from seeing my family, but there can be times of tension with family, right? Anybody have times of tension? Don't raise your hand. Well, there's joy in getting a present, sure, but the shopping, really. There's joy until you get the credit card bill, then the joy evaporates. You know why? Because it's not joy. And I love my cable, but Time Warner's not giving me joy. Where does joy come from? The world says, get stuff. Be with people. 
Put your hand in a turkey. You'll be joyful. I, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. That's what the ad said. Get your cable upgraded. You'll be so full of joy because you'll have 8,000 shows that you don't have time to watch. True joy and contentment, listen now, comes from the humble realization that God's birth means that, that Christ's birth means that God does love us and God does care about our souls and God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Back in 1719, Isaac Watts wrote the song, Joy to the World. Interestingly, he did not write it as a Christmas carol. He didn't write it about Christ in the manger. It was actually a hymn praising God in anticipation of Christ's triumphant return at the end of time. And Watts was restating verses 4 to 8 of Psalm 98 which says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. With righteousness he will judge the world and the people with equity. Psalm 98 remembers all the ways in in which God has protected and restored his people, starting with his plan for Israel, And looking forward to a time when everyone will bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and everybody will know that God is God. And when everybody knows that God is God, Psalm 98 says that everybody will shout for joy. So in anticipation of the return of Christ, Isaac Watts took the words of Psalm 98, and he said, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Not the baby. But Jesus' return. Now we can sing it as a Christmas carol because Christ's incarnation shows the true reason for joy. That He is the Savior and that people can be forgiven for their sins and that when judgment comes, we don't have to cower because it says we're accepted as His beloved children. Oh, that's wonderful. Joy to the world. The Lord has come as a baby. But joy to the world, when he comes back, he will receive us as his own. Second thought quickly, the joy is available to all people. No one is excluded from God's offer of salvation. Salvation is not just for a select group of people. The fact that the shepherds get the word first reminds us that anyone can know the truth. And we'll study it more, verse 11, next week. But notice for now that the angel doesn't say, Messiah is born, Israel. He says, a Savior is born for all people. And third, would you notice that the promise of joy is not questionable or unreliable. It is a certain assurance to anyone if they will believe. It is an absolute that God will save anyone and everyone who trusts in the Savior. So my question this morning is, do you have that assurance? And you will know whether or not you really trust in Christ based on whether you are filled with joy. When Isaac Watts wrote that song, he included an important phrase. He said, let every heart 
prepare him room. That's the reason Christ came to earth to save us. But some people's hearts are closed like the front door of that inn. And I try to picture what Mary and Joseph felt when that door slammed shut and it locked and they were standing there, Mary in labor, Joseph not knowing what to do, their situation very, very problematic. The door shut because that's how a lot of people treat Jesus Christ. And maybe that's true today. You closed the door. And I don't think I don't think the innkeeper was mean. I don't think he was being harsh or violent. And maybe you're like the innkeeper. You mean well, and, and, and you like to kind of, uh, you wish you could do something about it. You're all apologetic. I, I wish I could trust Christ Paul, but I just, I can't. You don't know the circumstances. I, I, I just, I just can't. Listen, if you open your heart today and make room for him, he will come in and he will save you from your sins. Have you done that? Have you opened up your heart? Have you made room? So many things are getting the way and so many things the enemy will say, these will fill you with joy. And if you do that, it'll fill you with joy. But I'm telling you this morning, the only good news of great joy is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And if you open up your heart and you receive him, he will change your life. It's an old hymn that says, into my heart, into my heart, in, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in to stay, come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. That's Luke 2.10. That's good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has been born. And he's Christ the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news of great joy. We praise you for your work in our lives. We praise you for redemption and salvation, for forgiveness, for assurance. Lord, we're overwhelmed by the fact that you do those things in our lives. And Father, I pray this morning, whatever our circumstance, wherever our heart is before you, that you would awaken us in a new way. Whether we've been saved a long time and just need to be stirred again and reminded how wonderful your birth was. Or whether... Lord, there's a person here this morning that absolutely walked in, not trusting in you, maybe doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Lord, I pray this morning you'd awaken their heart. And they would see the good news that you haven't left us to our own vices, that you don't want us to die and go to hell. You want to save us, and you're offering that gift to us. So, Lord, if there's someone here that's never received that, I pray right now in this moment in their heart they would pray to you and receive that. You're so good, and we praise you and honor you in this season of celebration for your son, Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord. We praise you, and we love you, and we pray this in his name. Amen.